Hello friends, and welcome to uh, So Poetry, Season 4, Episode 3. Uh, I'm talking with a uh, new poet friend, Natalie Wang. Um, would you like to introduce yourself and, and talk a little bit about uh, what you're up to and what you're about? Thanks so much, Michael. Yeah, um, yeah so uh, my name is Natalie. I, I've been writing poetry, I guess, for the last four or five years or so. Uh, I'm a Singaporean poet, fairly new to the scene. Uh, we, like, basically, I got into it by complete accident. We have a <laughs> thing called, yeah, we have a thing called the Singapore Poetry Writing Month that's been going on since uh, 2014 that was started up by some, um, like, professional, uh, prof- like, I won't say professional writers, so I guess the older writers who've been published and everything, and uh, because we're Singaporean and we're very sadistic when it comes to test scores and <laughs> uh, KPIs and things like that, what they wanted to do was basically mm-hmm. have uh, write a poem a day in April, oh. and uh, they, they accidentally left that Facebook group as an open group as opposed to as a secret group oh. and I had um, attended a couple of open mic sessions at that point and then uh, my friends in the open mic sessions were uh, joining it and then it popped up on my Facebook wall and then I just joined it and then like tried to do I've never completed 30 poems in 30 days before I think last year was 2018 was like my closest which was like 25 out of 30 nice. but uh yeah, it's grown to a really big community, and it's really, really nice. Like lots of people have um, fallen to poetry as a result. Uh, we get an anthology published each year. Some people have gone on to publish their own um, solo collections as well. After that, so uh, yeah, uh, and it all happened because somebody chose to accidentally left a Facebook. <laughs> 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 wow. Yeah, that's um, that's really interesting. There's a, it's not. Uh, poetry specific but there is a um, in the states there's I don't know if this is like uh, like a nationwide thing or if it's a, like pockmarked in like sort of cities across this, the country um, it's called fun a day where the idea is essentially it's like you you do uh, I think it's in February you you do some thing of art for like the entire month it could be like a poem a day or like a piece of art a day or um, you know, it's like you work on a, on a completed um, right, right. project over the month. Um, but I actually, the last residency that I went to, I, I think unintentionally did um, the like a poem a month thing, um, mm. which is like when you out, outside of like that, that writing for a month or attempting to, to get a poem a day, um, do you... Like how do you, how do you write? Do you is it like a sustained thing for you, or do you uh, do you go in spurts or sprints? It's a lot of spurts and sprints. So um, Facebook Memories was kind enough to show me that in late 2017 and early 2018, I was basically writing uh, one poem a week, and oh. I was pretty proud that each each poem was like a pretty decent like publication worthy kind of poem. Mm-hmm. And then this went on for I think about two or th- two or three months, and then it just stopped. Like I got a, <laughs> <laughs> I got a full time job after that. Um, that was pretty taxing, and yeah, then I, it just do it. Yeah, yeah that, that that was pretty depressing. <laughs> um, but I think 
I think a lot of uh, at that point in time, a lot of what I was writing was also very much related to what I was reading. So I do I do notice like when I'm reading more, I tend to write a lot more because a lot of the poetry ends up being in response to mm-hmm. whatever I happen to be reading at that point in time. Like I have like a bunch of poems that are. Um, after Sharon Olds, after after Richard Saikin, after Cyril Wong, who is a, a Singaporean poet, and then uh, they they were just all response pieces basically, and and that was I guess um, like my most productive period. <laughs> uh, yeah, since then it's been it's been very much like writing again in response, but not to poetry, but usually uh, sorry, not to other people's writing, but uh, usually to to oh. Uh, to to basically like whatever happened politically, socially, or something. Mm. Uh, like I think the last decent poem I wrote was in October, uh, which was which was written when I was in London. And um, Singapore has a very complicated history with when it comes to the UK and colonization. We're probably the only ex-colonial state that is. Um, proud to have been colonized because a big part of our national narrative is that um, the British we were a sleepy fishing village and then the British came and they turned us into this like amazing uh, port which was uh, like like you know visited by everyone and it was so multicultural and like, mm-hmm. British gave all this to us and like when I was in London uh, when I was like I, I wasn't just in London I was in Oxford I was uh, and I was just thinking a lot about that history of colonization and um uh like i i really needed to write like a, a response to <laughs> that so so yeah like it it, wow. it, it just yeah it, it comes and goes uh sorry what no i was th- i was just remarking that like that's that's a really like that sort of history with um colonization is i i recently i saw a um a post on reddit last night that was um it was a map of the world and it was uh, all the countries that the British did not colonize. And I think it was maybe like six or seven. Like the entire map was, was shaded red of all the places that, that Britain went to or the UK went to. And then there was, I think, like maybe six or seven countries that were white that had never been like colonized. And that was a, I don't know, like the, the reach of that imperialism is something that like the scale of it, I don't think that I ever really completely grasped. Um, I think the the saying was that like the sun never set on the British Empire. Yeah. Because yeah. Oh, yeah. because it wow! I, because it spanned. I, so many yeah. time zones, I guess. Yeah. Wow! I, I never put that together. But I, I I assumed that it was like a oh the sun never sets because this empire will continue to forever. Not the oh, literal yeah. sense that like this it's just that because it's yeah. so big. It's that, a really good pun. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So when you. So you've said that you write poetry in response to stuff. Um, is that the like, like the primary process for you is is to 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 be thinking about something or to experience something or or to be reading something and then there's a um, like a bubbling up in you of something to say, sort of like in dialogue or yes, um, okay, that's right. Like I I mean I believe that all I, I i'm pretty sure i'm quoting someone i just don't know who like but that all art is basically a a dialogue with mm. with previous artists and um i think it's especially easier to do so with poetry because i mean just the sheer length or, or the, the like the length of it, it being so short and mm. like 
poetry being, I think, um, heightened emotion. It's emotionally then like is likely to trigger a, a emotional response, mm-hmm. which I try to capture. Yeah. Hmm. So what, like, were you writing before, like, finding the Singapore Poetry Writing Month mm-hmm. Facebook group? Were you were you writing poetry or was it a sort of like uh, you? I was writing really, really, really bad poetry. <laughs> <laughs> my my, like, I I probably have like my fourteen year old Deviant Art account oh. somewhere still up. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of like I guess end rhymes that were really really bad or um. Yeah, uh, but like mostly, I actually never thought I would be a poet. I always thought I'll be a novelist or a short story writer. I will still say like um, most of the time, anyways, I'm still more comfortable with prose than I am with poetry because for prose, yeah, it's much easier to to me. It's much easier to word vomit and trim back prose as long as you kind of have an idea of the plot and where you're going. for poetry, I, I always feel like there's very... I'm, I don't always know how the poem will end. And there's like a very little roadmap. I might ha- I might start out with a thesis, but I don't always know where it goes. So I think that's a bit more... Uh, a reason why I find it a bit more... Dif- like, not difficult, but a bit more unnatural for, for me to... Or, yeah, for me to write poetry. Interesting. I'm... Yeah. Um, I, I, I think I'm opposite of that that like poetry was whenever when i first started taking creative writing classes and stuff um like i attempted narrative you know like short stories i had sort of this idea of this big expanded universe that i could i could maybe write novels into um and when i started working on it i was like i don't want to write all of the narrative stuff like all the setting and all the plot i just want to deal with these little emotional experiential moments between characters um and I was like, I don't, I can't, I, th- I think ultimately for me, it's, it's a question of like endurance or, or sustaining that active writing. Um, yes. It's like, it's, I'm similarly creative in bursts, um, like in general. And then on the kind of the micro scale in the, in the moments that I'm, I'm feeling the creative bursts, I need to be able to get something out, like mostly sort of at once, um, and then I feel like those are usually my more successful poem because then I can have I have this like text that I can then noodle with mm-hmm. and sort of rearrange versus something that like there's a poem I started writing in response to uh, Mary Oliver's death that has right. gone through in the span of I think like the first week and a half that I wrote it I generated like seven or eight different drafts of it or different versions of it, which is a very unusual thing in the way that I'm writing. I was like, I'm just going to let this sit, continue to sit for a little bit until I, I can arrive at a place. I'm like, oh, okay, I, I kind of have an idea of, of what I want to say. Um, mm-hmm. do, you, do you feel like it's, it's more of an, an act of trust writing poetry um, because of the fact that when you're writing it, you don't know where it's going to end? Yes. Like, and I feel that it's also sometimes a surprise because mm. for me, um, poetry tends, my, my writing at least tends to be a bit more confessional. And um, I, I, I write like speculative uh, poetry as well, uh, which is a lot in my, is a lot in like my book, The Woman Who Turned Into a Vending Machine. Like you can kind of get an idea from the title. Mm-hmm. But I feel that, that the, the speculative ones tend to be more 
honest, not honest, uh, to be more confessional as compared to the ones that are in the cleaner first person narrative mm-hmm. um, that people usually assume that are, are like ex- true experiences. And I'm like, no, the, the metaphors, honestly, like the extended metaphors in a prose poem or in a speculative fiction poem, I think, are the, are, are the scarier ones because it's the ones that I think um, stretch the logic of the experience as far as possible and if you find it still true after stretching it to that extent because I, um, I, I write a lot about women issues in, in the women who turn into the vending machine and and if that's people are still telling me like I felt this <laughs> after after like it's, it's literal like metamorphosis that these people like a lot of the personas go through then that's that's I think scarier yeah and I think that that like you you're hitting on like a long-standing view of mine that um, mm. I think one of the like the hallmarks of poetry is is the ability to attain some sort of like emotional or poetic truth, like that yes. that weird sort of like as you get more specific and personal down into like that emotion, that emotion then becomes a sort of universal thing that like everyone has fi- has felt something similar to that, but the way that they've yeah. gotten there is is differently, and I think yes. I would I would argue that. Um, like the emotional strength of those metaphors in the poems that you're talking about is that like that's that's you can you can showcase the strength of those things or those emotions or those experiences when you stretch it really really far and it still has that that major impact yeah yeah i I, i'm just sorry i'm just thinking about um uh one of the local writers in singapore once told me that um I think I think he, his complaint was that I was writing too plainly at that point in time, and he was pointing out that it's usually a sliding scale, right? Like, who are you writing for? Mm-hmm. If it is too general a audience and everybody reads it and gets it on first reading, like, what is the reread value of the poem? But on the other oh, hand, no. if it's written so specifically for this one person, it's so obscure, then. Um, who's going to understand it if you were to read it then yeah. he was like it's a sliding scale and it's up to you like there's no right or wrong where you want to that scale to end up with but yeah. it's it's something to think about in the crafting process yeah hmm. that's something that like i've that has been on my mind uh or not too far away from my mind a lot too because like i'm mary oliver is is one of my mm. sort of like she's in in my pantheon of poets she's way up there right at the top um, oh yeah and um, on her death, there were some like uh, remembrances of her, and one of them, um, I think a lot of them quote, pulled quotes from an interview that she gave with NPR a handful of years ago, where she said something along the lines that like the reason that she writes or that she feels that poetry should be um, relatively like direct and plain spoken, um, mm-hmm. that so that it's understandable by like you know a wide or it's un- like anybody could could read you know, one of her mm. poems and sort of like get it. Um, and I think going back to our, us or our talking about like the emotional um, truths of poetry, like that to me is, I think the, the, um, the reread value in it, in that like those, those emotions will be sort of at the bedrock of these things, but mm-hmm. throughout your life, you might, there might be like a different color or a different sheen that you can pull from it based upon the own, you know, like what you have experienced since the last time that you read this thing. 
Um, or they can act as these sort of like emotional, I don't know, like touchstones that like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling like centered in myself and I can like, I can use this thing to sort of like ground me and get me back to a place of where it is that I want to be. Um, because mm-hmm. I like, I have, I struggle with poets that seemingly are sort of like elusive and obtuse for like mm-hmm. the sake of being elusive and obtuse. Um, that it, I don't, I don't know. Like there's, I, there's something to be said about language poetry and like stringing words and sounds and phrases together for the, like the sonic qualities and not mm-hmm. relying so much on the, um, I don't know, like the actual literal meaning making of, of these, of putting these things together. But I feel like if you're, if you're trying to convey some sort of point like some sort of actual point, then I, I, I feel like it benefits a little more to have it be not as, um, I don't know, not as like difficult or challenging. Or like, In which case, um, would you say, like, I mean, I mean, sorry, this is just a, a, a debate that I guess I, I have with a lot of like my friends yeah. or the older local poets. Then what is the, like, must poetry be empathetic? Like if it has to make you feel something as you said like a like an emotional touchstone like that does it have to be that to feel good because i do think that there are there are there are poems that um like the migrant worker community in singapore like uh, a lot of the workers who are from like bangladesh for example they have they have degrees in literature and everything and they come here and they become menial laborers basically they built the country mm-hmm. um and and they're writing about all these these things that I may not necessarily feel because it's it's a very removed experience. Um, but I, I and, and of course it's in English. It's very very plain and sometimes not always grammatically correct. But it's it still it still has I think a lot of a lot of value. Yeah. No. I I, I don't think that for poetry to be successful, I don't think that it it necessitates being like um like uh, empathetic or emotional in in that regard um because i i think that um i don't know like just like art you know like there there are tons of different movements and styles and Mm -hmm. and themes in art um and i like that i'm for me specifically like i i tend to gravitate towards poetry that is um that does seek to transfer some sort of emotional experience from from mm-hmm. poet to reader, um, because I I know that's like that's how I tend to write. Um, so a lot of it is like reading as as a sort of like guideposts for me of mm-hmm. seeing like oh okay this is something like I I wonder if you can do this and then I read you know like Charles Wright or uh, Jane Hirschfeld I'm like oh okay yes they did something similarly. I can see how sort of they navigated this thing and then that can get me through whatever it is that I want to get through. But, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I think that, I think that there is, there's power in, um, you know, like, like language poetry. That's like things that just, that sound a particular way. Um, mm-hmm. there is a, there's a poet that I was working with. I actually published, um, his collection, one of his, his first full length, um, that he mm-hmm. does a lot of like, he the way that he writes it's like there's there's sort of meaning in in the actual lines but he is he's using those lines primarily as a way to like craft um tone and um 
the sort of like energy or the vibe or the color of a, of a piece. Um, right. But I don't know. I, I think that, I mean, yes, I, I ultimately, I think that there is that like poetry as a, as a style or genre of writing is big enough to include, you know, like there's, mm-hmm. you know, like any, any way that you write. I, I think for me, it's, it's more of a, like, if it's something that, that you come to like honestly and truthfully, regardless of what it is, then like there is, there's a, a value or there is a, um, like regardless of what that expression is, if it's coming from like an authentic or genuine quote unquote, like place in you, um, then that is like, that is valuable. And then I think that there is, um, someone someone out there will be able to to get something from it i think i don't know mm-hmm. um, cuz that's something that i've i thought about with my own writing of like does it ever, does it go far enough does it does it look hard at at like issues or or things that are happening at, like closely enough or does it scrutinize enough the things that are happening around me as opposed mm-hmm. to just like Oh, I I went on a walk today and I saw some birds and it made me feel these things and you know mm-hmm. here, um, but I don't know. Um, yeah, no, as you said, there's there's room for both. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely room for both. Because I I've, I've been like thinking about um, you know like oral the like oral oral poetic tradition that is that is much mm-hmm. more you know, like history telling or history compiling. Um, or like, you know, the sort of like, this is the, these are the, like the textbooks of the, of a, of a culture, um, or like old spirituals of, you know, like the slaves that they sang, um, while they were working in the fields, you know, like all of, all of these things that there's, you know, um, or even like with, um, like religious services, there's like that sort of ritual in, in the, like that, the high elevated language, um, that, you know, could, you may could maybe could make an argument that that that's like a type of poetry um mm. but oh definitely yes so yeah when you um over the like four or five years that you've been writing have you experienced any like major shifts in your writing and if so like can you can you point to things that precipitated those shifts mm shifts uh okay a few i think um uh the one major one i think which is immortalized by i guess my my first book uh for good or for ill is um venturing a lot into narrative poetry and uh, prose poetry uh, which was something I, I I had always been interested in because uh, like I said I, I always came in I came into poetry thinking I you know I'm a prose writer mm-hmm. I'm just gonna see what I can get out of poetry which I definitely when it comes to like technique uh, brevity and everything I I could see my own prose getting stronger as a result of rec- like looking conscious consciously looking at these things in the editing process uh, but. Uh, I think I was in a really bad place in uh, 2017 when it came to my work because I, I had no idea what I was doing anymore. Um, and then and then I just started writing uh, fairy tale rewrites, which was a thing that I've been doing for many, many years. But I tried to do it in the um, 
like I tried to incorporate the kinds of elements that are seen in both fairy tales as well as uh, poetry, which would be like repetition, things coming in in threes, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. And then I I don't know, like it it just. Uh, it, and then I started writing a lot of weird stuff because, <laughs> yeah, because I was just thinking like what uh, I, I think I just read a Neil Gaiman essay in which he was talking about writing American Gods and he was saying that a lot of he was afraid to write the book at first because a lot of people he, he knew a lot of people go like you're British what what are you doing writing an Ameri- like a, a book that's so ostensibly set in the US and and also like attempting to to ask questions about the spirit of the United States and um, these kinds of things and then um, he in the end he thought fuck it uh, like you know because <laughs> if I don't write it if I don't write it no one's gonna write it right so which was I thought was a very fair point and then um, I started thinking about like what could I contribute I guess to Singaporean literature that nobody else could so i was thinking about how um i'm a big sucker for horror stories that kind of like campfire mm-hmm. kinds of stories i i like uh i i grew up reading a lot of a lot of um ghost stories and um supernatural things and because singapore is such a a hodgepodge of cultures as well as the fact that a lot of a lot of um Chinese Taoism, Malay, like Javanese black magics, all based in animism. Um, there are a lot, like it, it melded together a lot, especially when it came to black magic practices. Uh, and you can still find these like mediums and um, Malay bomos. Uh, I guess like the best way to describe them be like black magic shamans. There, mm. there's still you can still find them today. You can still visit them and ask them for like charms and and protection spells or curses and things like that so i was thinking about all these things and seeing what i could write so i ended up writing a lot of like the woman who turned into a vending machine for example was just like oh um it'd be really interesting if a woman turned into something right like Mm -hmm. um that was because i just finished reading han kang's book the vegetarian which was, uh, uh, I think, a man Booker Prize for 2016. Either finalist or the winner, I can't remember. But it's a Korean book in which a woman decides to become vegetarian. And she becomes basically... Um, like, and being vegetarian in, in South Korea especially, is it's very bizarre. Like, there is no word, for example, for veganism in that culture. And when oh, I tried... Wow. Yeah, because... For so long, the country like th- I, I'm not I'm not a Korean history expert, but like <laughs> this is my understanding. Um, for so long that the meat was just not something that was commonly eaten because they were dragged through various wars, they were colonized, they were enslaved before that. Um, so like when you think about Korean barbecue and things like that, that's a very very recent thing to the culinary culture. Before that, it's a lot of um vegetables like kimchi and all this like pickled fermented things that will last mm-hmm. for ages so like to say today like i i don't want to eat meat would be akin to basically telling your parents like you know all these sacrifices that you've made to put this food on my table i and i don't want it um so her parents react badly her, her husband reacts badly and at the end of it there's just this 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 um image of her in in mental asylum and she's, she just refuses to eat and she's withering away and she's just saying, I want to be a tree. Because, um, oh. yeah, she wants to basically give up the animal body and all animal desires. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about how, like, um, 
like there's a lot of ways to read the novel because it like there's a lot of ways to interpret what that means but my take on it was that there were so many expectations for her as a daughter and as a wife and as a woman and the only way she could escape those was to essentially give up her entire body so I was thinking like if a woman were to want to turn into something what would it be and I was like it's a vending machine it's oh. it's something that will give you your food, your whatever. Like, I mean, vending machines in Japan, for example, can give you almost anything. Um, and without the human service of having to smile or to give you any emotional labor or any expectation of having to greet the server or anything, it's just what you want. You press the button and you get it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So, so I think that 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 poem basically inspired a lot of other metamorphosis poems after that like a mother who turns into a baby a, um there's this title there's a baby and my boyfriend um uh, yeah so so i was trying to think of things that were like weird and kooky and and um there was some there's some poetry that's like very specific to east asian and southeast asian and um even south asian mythology so um, that was, I guess, my attempt to write something that would contribute to the literature without be by by still being something that nobody else could have written. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's that would be the, like the first the, the the one thing one thing that like really changed my writing. And then the other was after I was done writing the manuscript and submitting it to my editor, I went. I, I started reading a lot more poetry. I started going to a lot of open mic sessions. And that was when everything changed. Like I went from a prose poetry writer to either... I had two... I basically had two modes. It was either spoken word because I'll go to a, um, a spoken word session every month or it would be something really, really short. And then somebody was like, the length of your poetry has changed. I'm like, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um so I think I'm still I'm still there somewhere between the two. Yeah. Do you is there do you have a different process when you write um like poetry that you intend for the page versus poetry that you intend to be sure. um yeah. like a, like there, a spoken word piece? There are definitely like very different devices that I would use, like literary devices. So like for I I tend to treat all spoken word poetry as a dramatic monologue. Because I, I used I used to do theater, so um, yeah, it's it's usually first person. It's usually addressing the room or, or the audience. Um, but when it comes to uh, and it's usually a lot more direct because I mean, um, yeah, it's a lot more direct. But when I want to, but if I want to write something for Paige, uh, I am a lot more conscious about um, cutting down anything I might think of as superfluous but when writing for stage like I'm also very aware that if you have something too subtle nobody's gonna ca nobody in the audience is going to catch it unless yeah. you repeat it times um there is actually some controversy about this in um at least in Singapore I'm not so sure about uh other other spaces because like I I'm, I'm aware that there's usually some contention between the academic poets <laughs> and the spoken word poets mm -hmm. um uh, the the divide is definitely not as great in Singapore because the space is so small and lots of people straddle the line between the two, especially in the last last 
generation, like I guess the last couple of decades. But um, there are a lot of um, spoken word poets, I think, who are very sensitive to being what they think is being called out, that their poems are longer, that their poems don't have as much uh, rigor in terms of editing, which I, I just think is untrue. It's just very different devices are used. Yeah. Well, that's something yeah. that, like, I, I never really... I think that I was in the process of putting together that, like, spoken word pieces are essentially dramatic monologues, but I, I wasn't there yet. Um, mm-hmm. But it really is, like, that's... Because that's, I did... I very briefly did speech and debate when I was in high school. Um, you know, like, had to memorize pieces and then present them at, like, you know, the debate tournaments and stuff like that yeah and it feels like the maybe not necessarily the energy but the sort of like the presentation in this space feels very similar to some of the spoken word um meetings or you know like events that i've that i've been to yeah um and every performance will be different right Um, yeah yeah and it's i and yeah and, and the fact that that spoken word pieces operate in a space very differently like you said the if you have something that's like really subtle or like a, a play and like some sort of pun happening that maybe mm. you need to see on the page to really get what's going on, it's not going to translate yeah. super well if you're speaking it. So there are different, different considerations or different um, like devices, like you said, that you have to yeah. employ in order for that to be effective when you're presenting it. Like not, not just orally, but in a space that is usually surrounded you know, it's like there, there's tons of other stuff like that. Drunk people and and like right. lots of noise. There's a band going on downstairs. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. when you when you do readings of poems that you have written, um, like for the page, do you try to incorporate any of the, I guess, like the the motifs of spoken word, like into those uh, readings, or do you like are those two totally separate things for you? So I think. Uh, so like when when I was getting my book published, um, my mentor of sorts, I guess, told me that I need to be prepared to know which poems I would want to read during like my launch or during any other event I might be attending, mm-hmm. which was really good advice because there are just some poems that are so short. Like I, the very shortest poem in my book, for example, um, actually I can read it out to you right now, and we'll see like. What what you like? What you make of it is, I think, something that that if you did not know the context of, you would not understand at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so the poems they said, um, they said that he was the perfect man, the perfect prince, and perfect king, and so he must have been the perfect husband. For look, he could lift Shiva's great bow unstraining. He was very beautiful, and I listened. It is too bad, though, that. They also said many things about me that were untrue, and he listened. So like, it's it's just that it's really short. Um, it reads well, honestly, because it's it's you know full sentences. It's a it is a it is a monologue, mm-hmm. um, in first person. But if you don't get the South Asian Hindu mythology that it came from, um, from the Ramayam, like you're not gonna get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So would that would that be? Like if you were if you were touring, like Southeast Asia, is I, would that be a piece that you would be more willing to read versus if you were somewhere, um, 
I don't know, like New Zealand or Australia, or if you happen yeah. to be like so in, I in mean, London. I might read it in, I mean, read it in uh, Malaysia, or or if I ever get invited to an India festival, which I, it's one of my bucket list things. Um, I really hope I will. That yes, I would read that. But um, definitely, like, because I, I, when I went over to London and Glasgow last year, I was uh, looking out for spoken mic, uh, open, uh, uh, sorry, open mics that I could go to. Mm-hmm. And I definitely curated a set list that was um, different. But at the same time, I was trying to pick out pieces um, that were specific to Southeast Asia that I hope that a white audience might not necessarily completely understand but would be able to appreciate and um i I think yeah when i was in glasgow i read uh this poem called the pontiana which is um one of those poems that i was really scared to actually write or publish or even post on facebook because it's uh, a very specific it's a a pontianic is basically a malay ghost um in which she's basically like a female vampire, but it's a very poor way of understanding the ghost. She's basically a woman who usually either died in childbirth or, or and and she basically goes around in in white, and she either looks like a beautiful woman, or she looks like a crone, and she she I she's always looking to kill men and eat their intestines because she's always hungry, or she's looking for babies. So um. It's a it's a very specific ghost, and it, it conjures up a very specific fears in Southeast Asia. Because if you grew up in Singapore, Malaysia, that's the ghost that lives in the trees that parents would threaten their kids ah, with, or okay. that horror stories about. Like almost every boy who goes into national service in Singapore, when they go out into the forest and things like that, that's the ghost that people warn you about. Like don't 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 you know like don't pee near the banana tree because that's where <laughs> you're supposed to live. Yeah. So don't don't piss that ghost off. Mm-hmm. So um, I read that, but I read that, and the one I the poem I wrote about this ghost was basically one about um, I think the Arabization of Malay culture, in which basically I feel that I and oh, I feel like it's just factually true that while there is a, um, a resurgence of Islam in Southeast Asia. It also means an, a more a bigger embracing of Arab culture. So there's now a tradition of naming your daughters um, Arab names rather than Malay traditional names because the Arab culture is just seen to be closer to what is correct um, than than traditional Malay culture is. So what would this this ghost, if she came back into society, feel like if if suddenly everyone around her is 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 basically Muslim. Well, she's eating, she's eating like pig guts rather than yeah. men guts in order to be able to feed herself. And like that's not that's not halal. That's 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 um that's not permitted in the eyes of God. So like, how mm-hmm. does she deal with that? So um that was a poem that I read in Glasgow, and it was really nice because it turned out that there was a Bangladeshi poet, and there was a girl who grew up in a Muslim home but who had left um, Islam. Uh, and her family, uh, who came up to me and told me that that was something that they felt, and then wow. um, that was yeah, that was in Glasgow. I did not, I really did not expect <laughs> that. Yeah, and in London, where that was when I also read that poem. I, I told you I was talking about earlier about colonization and how um, how how complicated the history is in Singapore, and and then like 
like I think one of the one of the one of the, one of the guys in the audience was just like I think you made the world a little bit bigger today, and I was like, oh, that's oh, wow, that is a, yeah, that's, that, a, that's amazing, amazing compliment. Yeah. Wow. Um, so and because that was the set that was I curated to be a bit more about Singapore to just try to challenge the audience, which was mostly white and mm-hmm. male, and a lot of. Um, older poets who very clearly came from the academic tradition. Like there was this guy who basically read a poem and he's he sounded like I don't know, Sir Walter Squab like Walter <laughs> Yeah, like he, he and you could tell that he his diction, his the the depth of his voice, he, he was amazing. But it was still from what I think is a very um, a very old tradition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. When you when you were talking about the the Malay ghost poem, like mm-hmm. thinking about um, American gods, like that feels like a very, like not overtly American gods move, but that idea of like that like there are these these traditions or these these beliefs that are that are grown up in a place, and then that like what happens when that place changes, but those mm. beliefs are still you know like these things that have been conjured by the they people continue to exist yeah. yeah yeah it's like they continue to exist but the people move on and you're like well you know mm. like they're they're dispossessed of their home essentially um which is like that was that's i think that's a really interesting thing to like an interesting place to explore specifically that i feel like um i mean i feel like most people i mean i i feel like a lot of people that I know, like, you know, the millennial-ish generation mm-hmm. has experience in one form or another, like, that sort of um, uprooting against your will idea yeah. that, like, you know, there's this thing that you've, or this life that you've been living and suddenly it shifts or it changes and it's sometimes out of your control, sometimes you do it, you know, like, as a as a survival mechanism. But it it's like you arrive in the same place of suddenly you're like, oh, I don't have these things that I thought that I had anymore and you know, like this, the, the, the struggling to be like, well, what, like, what's, what's next? Mm-hmm. How do I, how do I cope or how do I deal with this? Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, so I studied sociology in, in university. There's a, there's a term for that, the, um, Durkheim's alienation, but basically like, like, I mean, he wrote this early 20th century, but I think it's still very relevant today, especially in like urbanization, in like urban spaces that just rapidly yes. changing all the time. And yes, yes, um, yes, it yes. used to be, yeah. And like, I, I mean, he, I think he had a very a slightly myopic understanding, but it's a very beautiful theory to, to build on. Like when he was saying, we used to have things that will hold us into place, like um, the church, the family, all these, all these structures that while constraining us still gave us purpose and mm-hmm. meaning and now that our like well i mean like I, I'm, I'm updating the theory but like <laughs> now that our jobs are being displaced now that right. um the the church doesn't have the same kind of hold on us or even family doesn't have that same um kind of um hold the way it used to like duty like i, I guess to quote game of thrones like family duty honor like mm-hmm. being the tuggy housewards these things don't quite exist anymore so we're just left and and like not not like so like we're left stranded and then to see the physical landscape and this is just coming from a singaporean who basically like our, our landscape has changed so much in the last 20 years there are all these like childhood playgrounds and things like that like from 10 years ago are likely gone bulldozed over mm-hmm. and built over now like it's it's all just gone yeah um 
and it makes you I guess just makes you feel very lost and I, I guess like when I was in Oxford like something that like my, my friend was touring me around I was just very astounded by how there are just like specific families who who have lived there yeah. for generations and they're just there to upkeep the masonry the the carpentry and everything because that's just what they've been trained for and that's just what is value like that that's that's just something that's really astounding to me yeah like that that, that that there are places that still have that connection to like that through line through history like there's been a house yeah. on this city block or like this this stretch of land dating back yeah. you know like 300 years it has been in my family for for god yeah. knows how long yeah, yeah. like six thousand generations we've been here um yeah well, since we're coming to the end of this recording, um, I would like to ask you the two questions that I traditionally ask all of my guests. Um, the first one being, if you have the vocabulary for it, what is your internal landscape like? Wow. Um, oh, well, I, I was not prepared for that. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it would be something that is always shifting and moving Ooh. so it would it would kind of be like i guess it'll, it'll kind of be like you know there's this this uh ghibli miyazaki ghibli movie called house moving castle yes. like there's a door yeah there's a door that can just keep shifting and mm-hmm. lead you into other places depending mm-hmm. on mood or whatever so i think i think that would be my landscape because like my, i mean i guess my needs and my wants change very frequently like whether or not i want to be extroverted or introverted or whether i want to read or game or whatever like and i have a lot of interests so i i, I think that would be it do yeah. you do you th- feel or think that there are like certain locales that the door leads to more than others or is it sort of just like a smorgasbord or like a just no, an open buffet of of all these different an, things it is an open buffet yeah wow yeah i don't i don't think i think that you might be the first person that that has brought to the the table that particular quality of internal landscape right um, which well, is yeah, yeah it's and it's interesting that like my, once I figured out or I discovered what mine was, it has been essentially unchanged. Like it is a very, it's a static sort of just it, almost feeling like eternal thing. So it's interesting to like, to think about that, that mine, I feel like mine is like just bigger, vast enough that it can include all of these different things versus the sort of like it, mm-hmm. it's shifting to, to meet a specific um, like internal need. That That's a really, mm-hmm. that's a really uh, interesting and engaging thought that I might, I mm. think I will have to spend some time thinking about that. Um, well, it could just be a fact that I have yet to figure out how to in- integrate all my interests together. Mm. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't know. Like that, that idea of the, the sort of like the, the anything door feels mm. true. I don't know. I mean, and it might be that the internal landscape is the door itself and it just mm. like, it's that threshold that allows you to step into like wherever it is that you need to step almost like a bag of holding or the um no what was it the room of necessity from harry potter um, yeah the room of requirement yes yeah. yes that's what it was um wow that's really that's cool um okay and my last question is do you have a question for me mm. um, it can be any like think of it as is that threshold door any anything's on the table just in general if if there is something that that you would that you would like to ask me 
how do you think Game of Thrones season eight is going to end? Oh God, um, <laughs> I I'm a big big fan of the theory that um, Bran is the Night King. Mm. Um, okay, I know that one. Yeah, that he has been like unsuccessfully trying to warg back through time to stop the Night King, and then gets trapped in the the initial guy who turns into the White Walker. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think that there will probably be some showdown with uh, Jon Snow. I really, I really want there to be some showdown with like Jon and his his half siblings and Bran, and the sort of moment of like Bran just lets it happen. Um, mm. Maybe I don't know, or like they're able to like pull his his actual consciousness to the surface. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we will see. Do you know? Yeah. Do you know when they're going to start airing again? Is it something? It's like later this year, right? I think it's in June this year, rather than May. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, sorry. The the I've been reading a lot of fan fiction and Wikipedia <laughs> pages again, so it's been bugging me. Yeah. Would you? We should do a um, like a, a Game of Thrones fan cast after the end and just talk for a little oh. bit about how how the how the series ends um yeah but um i think that, that that's probably gonna do it um thank you so much for for uh spending time with me um i guess thank like so. <laughs> cutting into your your dinner time uh to, t- <laughs> to talk with me um would is there you have any uh is there anything that you'd like to leave uh the listening audience with any any words to impart wow uh i'll I'll be really, really lame and just say like, just keep writing because there's nothing to edit and there's nothing to submit if you don't write. Very true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was just getting into a, um, talking to a friend earlier today, and she was like, "Oh, I want to be published," and I'm like, "Do you have a manuscript yet?" No. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that's not gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah. Just, well, just that. I guess. Yeah. Well, there you have it. Oh, keep writing. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I will, I will talk to y'all next time.